Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Stompcast with me, Dr. Alex George. This is the podcast where I go for a walk with a guest to take a little wander into their life. Before we start, a huge thank you to everyone that subscribes to Behind the Stomp on Apple Podcasts. It gives you guys exclusive episodes, access to Dr. Alex's diaries where I talk about topics like dealing with grief. For 3 dollars you'll have access to all of this, plus Behind the Stomp episodes where we reflect on the guests that we've just had and a lot more. Thank you for subscribing. Also, if you want to support the Stompcast, please do remember to subscribe on Spotify or Apple to the podcast and leave a review. It really does help. Right, let's get cracking. This week, I'm stomping with actor, presenter and campaigner Adam Pearson. When Adam was five, he was diagnosed with neurofibromatosis type 1, a genetic condition that causes non-cancerous tumours called fibromas to grow along his nerve endings. It's estimated to affect 1 in 3,000 people. It's estimated to affect around 1 in 3,000 people. It can affect anywhere along the nervous system, basically, through from your skin all the way to causing issues in the brain like epilepsy and so on. Adam is absolutely incredible, both in terms of his work in acting and presenting documentaries, but also his campaign work. He worked behind the scenes on The Undateables, forefronting powerful documentaries about his own condition and becoming an important voice in the disability awareness space. Welcome to the Stompcast, Adam. Thank How you. are you? All good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. Um, I was actually just saying to you that uh, one of the things that I love most about the Stompcast is you come to all sorts of different areas that you haven't necessarily been to. And actually, you know, I live in Battersea. It's not very far from Croydon where we're walking today, but I haven't been to this part before. And it's so funny, you come off this road and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm in the countryside. <laughs> we're in right. Croydon and we're literally in the countryside. This could be anywhere. It literally could be anywhere. So we aren't anywhere, we're actually in Croydon. Why is there an attachment to this place? Why is it significant I'm, I'm, to you? I'm, I'm born and bred in Croydon. Look, the park we're in, back to Sun City, sits on college that I used to go to. So I used to walk through it on the way home. And I used to come down here occasionally on like lunch breaks and what have you. You know, it's anything just to get some headspace and get out of the out of the building. Not that I resented the building. Yeah, were those were those uh, escapes for lunchtime or put with permission? <laughs> Exit uh, out of the back. <laughs> Six to one, half a dozen of the other. I think. Yeah, just escape out. I mean, I know the thing. I think one of the best things about becoming a sixth form, I don't know what they what, what the situ was with your kind of college, what you call it, but when you kind of go to sixteen plus, is then you are trusted that you could go out to the local kind of sweet shop or go into the park. And I absolutely loved that. So like, you know, when you have you know, like free periods or whatever, just get outside. I think it was my favorite part of being at school was actually being able to leave school. Yeah. <laughs> Which maybe, I don't know if that's a good thing looking back, I'm not sure, but it feels that way. Well, it's only about having freedom, but not too much freedom. And yeah. total freedom, I'd have gone nuts. Yeah. So I still, you know, make sure you got your lessons, yada, yada, yada. But 
we're not going to keep that close to tab on you. And what, I think it sort of helps you grow up, but at the right pace. True. What did you enjoy studying? What did you dislike studying at school? Oh, well, at college I liked everything, because you get, you get to pick it, right? So, you know, well, I did business, economics and sociology, and loved, loved all of those. But then when you're at um, high school, you just have to do everything. And, and any design and technology, or, or PE, anything that required physical exertion, or very high levels of skill, just not my wheelhouse. It's funny how we, um, when we go to school, we kind of start these blank canvases and everyone kind of finds things they like and they don't like and everyone's so, so different with what they end up going into. It's kind of, I guess, what it makes life interesting. It'd be pretty boring if we all decided we liked exactly the same thing. And, and also I find it interesting as well that people find or fall into their interests earlier or later on in life. I mean, when, you know, the st- I mean, you're resume if you like is I mean pretty damn impressive when did you kind of realize that you'd end up going into you know television whether that's acting producing you know also campaigning the documentaries was it when you're younger was it clear that you were attracted to that space or I, I made the, well, the the attraction to tv came at like a really young age a, uh, a work colleague of my father's had contacts at the uh, the bbc so we went to go and see Live and Kicking being filmed on like a Saturday awesome. morning. Awesome. I'm, I'm showing my age here, aren't I? A, a little bit. And it was like the original Live and Kicking with Andy Peters, Emma Forbes, and John Barrowman. That's so cool. That's and so and cool. watching it all go on, I was like, this is amazing. You know, I, I, like, I like the pace of it, I like the feel of it. And I was like, yeah, cool, want to do this when I'm older. But then realised how competitive it all was. And um, not the most stable thing either. So I had to have like a really solid plan B. So I went right the way through to uni studying business and economics. That way, if everything didn't work out, I could still function as an adult in, in the employment marketplace. But luckily, I landed on my feet quite quickly and I've done quite well. I think you've done slash, I changed that. You're doing <laughs> rather well. Um, tell us about your kind of first kind of productions and things in TV? Because I know that you worked across things like Undateables, which I think spans 20 plus series is now kind of, yeah, like, well, around the world. You know, what was your first job, if you like? And what was it like? Because I think for a lot of people, I mean, especially me growing up, TV is this kind of slightly magical, mysterious, slightly weird world. You see this box and things happen on it, but it's kind of hard to imagine what goes into making TV. My first job in TV was in commissioning management at the, the BBC, which wasn't the job I applied for, weirdly. I applied to work at uh, Radio 6 Music, and it comes second, and you get the, the email going, oh, we thank you for applying, we really like you, we're going to keep you on trial, gotta, you know, that kind of cut and paste. Yeah. Rejection email. So I thought, uh, roll my eyes. Pace. You're so true. Like, yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. Roll, you know, <laughs> roll my eyes a bit tired, swore yeah. under my breath, and then moved on really quickly. Yeah. And then two days later, they called me and said, we've had this job come up in commissioning management. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah, I am. Thinking they'd say, great, we'll send you the application form, fill it in, and we'll see what happens. But they just went, great, your interview's tomorrow. And I was like, okay. Plenty of preparatory time then. Oh yeah, en- <laughs> enough. Enough for a blagger. <laughs> Turn up and give it a go. And how did that, I guess that interview went, well, yeah, well, well I, I, got, I got the job. Well, the interview went well, is a different question. But I, I, I got the job. 
and then spent six months on like the power floor of what was then Television Centre uh, at White City on like a six-month, six-term contract with a really wonderful line manager who I still talk to called Mary Fitzpatrick. And I was like, what are the rules on me emailing all the execs to ask me for coffee? And she's like, there are no rules. I'm like, great, can I do it? She was like, yeah, go for it. So I wound up getting coffee with the likes of Mark Lindsay, who now heads up BBC Studios, Danny Cohen, Simon Wilson, Lucy Lonson, and just like making, you've got to make yourself known. You have to make people like you and know that you're there. Mm. And I'm, luckily, I move quite well, I'm quite articulate, I'm quite likeable, but I also love TV. And there's a lot of people who work in TV who don't like it. Yeah, or, I mean, or watch I, it or know about even it. Even like, you know, I've only been in this kind of space for about five years, but I kind of, yeah, it's quite interesting that there seems to be. It seems to attract all types of people, I guess, like a lot of situations do. But you can really tell the people that are super passionate and love what they do. So I guess, you know, in terms of your experience then, so you'd kind of, you'd gone for these coffees, you'd met, you know, various people in the industry. What happened next? And we'll, we'll kind of come back. I think we talk a lot about life lessons in the third part, but something really strikes me is that you have to put yourself out there, don't you? You have to go for things. So you went for this, you know, you got this initial in, if you like, and sometimes that's that's what it's like in life, isn't it? You've got to take the opportunity to go, go for the in yeah. and then build from there. So talk me through your kind of journey of kind of from there through to some of the things you do now. Well, after that, I got sent to an independent, or well, a, a then independent production company called Becky. Um, Danny Cohen, who yeah. is now a, a media tycoon in his own right, at the time he was head of BBC Three, sent me there for what was just going to be two weeks' work experience in development. That then became four weeks, that then became two months. And then I, one of the things I helped develop got greenlit. So they brought me on as a junior researcher. Then that became strand presenter. And so that was how I sort of got into the presenting on camera. How do you deal with things like rejection? Because as I've learned very quickly is that you can create all these different ideas. You might kind of come up with concepts that you take to channel or producers and think, oh, I think this is a great idea. But you never know, first of all, whether someone's gonna like it or even if they like it and they go, yeah, this is a great idea. So you meet some producers, they go, yeah, we'll put this down on paper, we'll flesh this out. You then go to commission and they go, yeah, we're not commissioning it or you know, it doesn't. It just doesn't happen. I think rejection happens a lot in television. How do you deal with rejection? And yeah, has it changed over time? Are you more resilient to that kind of thing? And I've always been quite resilient to rejection. Not everyone's going to like what you do all of the time. And in TV, it's all very dependent on what the idea is, what channel you're taking it to, what commission you're taking it to, even what mood is the commissioner in that day. You could pitch something a day earlier or a day later than you actually do and it would have probably gotten a very different result. But it's all just part of the course. And I don't take it personally because at the end of the day, it isn't personal. It's just business. And just because it's a no on an idea now, it doesn't mean you can't dust it off three, six, a year later and have another crack at it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one where you know, I talk about it a lot on Stumpcast. One of the things I've learned personally is that failure is like an inevitable process to get to success, isn't it? You have yeah. to go and try multiple things. And it's quite hard psychologically sometimes to detach from 
me versus like this is part of the process you kind of can take things quite personally i guess but when you learn to to kind of have at least a decent level of detachment you actually then you notice a huge shift don't you psychologically but also in the successes you experience because you kind of pick yourself up you move you move onwards i mean could you share an example of of a time where perhaps you've gone for something it's not worked out but then something else has come up because i think that happens a lot too you think oh my god this has happened in life like this has not worked out and before you know it you walk around the next corner maybe even literally something good happens totally and i think it's interesting that we sort of polarize emotions and circumstances in that manner where we see failure as the opposite of success rather than as as you wonderfully articulated the journey towards success as long as you're not failing in the same way over and over and over because then you're falling into Einstein's definition of madness, yes. absolutely. absolutely. But you know, fail, get back up, fail harder, get back up. I, I went for a, um, an audition for a re really small role, but in quite a well-known yeah. um, film franchise, Star Wars. Um, <laughs> just a little, little role in... Just that small franchise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Little role in, you know, hand solo mm. would, have, would, have, would have broken even, more than likely. And, you know, it, for one reason or another, it didn't come off. And I was just like, you know, a bit disappointed, but again, you move on, it's the process. And then, had I gotten that role, I wouldn't have been able to be in Under the Skin, because the dates overlapped. So, from not getting a small role in not the best Star Wars film, let's be honest, I wound up getting a, quite a major supporting role in one of the most iconic British films of all time. That's, that is a really interesting point you've raised there, whereby we often think that if you fail, something might, good might happen. But actually, if you'd have succeeded, quote-unquote, or whatever you want to call that, in getting that role, it would actually have taken, you away, or taken away the opportunity from something that ends up being better or or more important in your kind of journey. That's a really interesting, interesting point. And I think that kind of shows really how important it is just to be able to kind of go, do you know what, it's kind of not meant for me. And, you know, I just wonder whether, how much of it do you think, is it, is it science? Do you think it's just the laws of intention? Are you moving in a certain direction and things kind of move in your, like come into your path or work because you're intending for them to happen? Or do you think elements, do you believe in elements of fate? Like, do you believe in fate? I'm a big believer in things like fate and, and predestination. Mm. But by the same token, I don't take it to an extreme where I don't just sit around and wait for fate to do its thing. You've got, you've got to be an active participant in your own destiny. But sometimes the right thing comes along at the exact right time. It's that point of the... That's, I quite like the idea of the laws of intention because it's like... I, I heard a really interesting... Um, way of putting it before from a footballer, Thierry Henry, you know, le Arsenal legend, who, who used to say, you know, people say that I'm, you know, everything, I'm so talented. He said, I've got 10% talent, it's some along the line, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but like 10% talent, you know, 10% good, good luck and the right timing, luck and timing, and 80% hard work. Yeah. And I thought that was a brilliant way of, because everyone kind of looks at people like him or, you know, an actor or a singer and goes, oh, you know, Ed Sheeran said it, didn't he? He said, the, I, listen, don't, you know, I've obviously got talent now, but here's a video of me singing when I was like, <laughs> before I practiced. Yeah, I've seen that video. It's awful. Yeah, and you're kind of like, and you listen to me, what? And, uh, but he says, like, you have to do your thousand hours or whatever you call it. Like, the hours have become a master. You've got to do a mi minimum amount of time and work at it. 
But I think what probably scares a lot of people from, from that doing that is the fear of failure. So I guess we we're going to say we're going to talk about some of these lessons at the end, but I think it's absolutely in, you know, in keeping what we're talking about now. What tips would you give people if they want to go for something, whether that's actually in television or whatever it is? Yeah. What advice would you give people about pushing on and keeping going if you're getting rejection or knockbacks? I, I really strongly like pushing through. Um, I, I've always found it easier to live with failure than regret. That's a great line. That is a, we, need to ca we need to write that one down. That's perfect. Emma's writing that down behind us. I love that. That's so true, isn't it? Because at least if you've tried and you fail, you tried. Whereas living with the fact of like, what if? What ifs is what people say, isn't it? One of the worst thing in life is what if. And being able to kind of give it a go and at least said that you've, you've tried. And so, if you can move on from what ifs, they are a lot more weighty than the, the scrapes and cuts you can get from just failing. Those tend to heal quite quickly. But, you know, there's, there's a whole one, what if, I don't know, extreme example, what if Adolf Hitler had been a slightly better artist? Sure. And so, gone into art college. So basically gone into a different direction and that wouldn't yeah. have happened. Do you, do you have any what ifs? I mean, that's an external example, a very powerful one, but do you have any experiences you have? Do you have what ifs? Are there things that sit with you and think, oh, what if this or that? I often think what if, because secondary school wasn't fun for me. But I, equally, I wasn't fun for secondary school um, either. I, I was hardly an, an innocent party in, in the whole experience. And I could have moved schools in year eight to the, the, the sixth one I went to ultimately, where I turned everything around. I'm like, what if I'd have actually grown up and gone rather than trying to be old, biggie, big bollocks and being stubborn? And, and yeah, turns out mother was right. Mother is always right. There we go. I said it. You're happy yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of I say the same thing as well. I, I find that I often uh, you know, look back in life and the number of, almost every time that I've not listened to my mum, even if it's taken a year, six years or ten years, I've gone. Yeah, fair enough. You were right. <laughs> you were right when you said that you, you had your part in it. So. Is that in the sense you mean that you think that you should have moved? Because, you know, you talk a lot about the experience you had with bullying. I mean, a lot of the time, to be honest, it's hard to see, it's hard to see your part of it when people are perpetrators of bullying. So I just wonder, what do you, what do you mean by that? And also how, how do you reconcile with your experiences of bullying and things at, at school? Do, you, do those trigger a lot of emotion with you? Are you kind of, he said, I don't know if that's the right word, but. Well, no, I, I think, even then, I don't think I cared that much. But now, completely reconciled, I, I hold no emotional baggage myself. But I also don't force it on other people. I think it's unfair and unreasonable to judge anyone on who they were when they were 16. Because I've yet to meet a 16-year-old, and I say this in the most respectful way one can, I've yet to meet a 16-year-old that isn't a total idiot. Yeah. Yeah, not, not because they're academically incapable or, or what have you, but you're, you're 16, you don't know how, how the world works. And your brain hasn't even fully developed. But I mean, it's, it's amazing that you see it that way. And I think that's, that's incredibly powerful. I've heard a lot of people talking about being able to let go, you know, because if you hold anger against them, the only person that's hurting is you, it's not hurting them. So obviously it's very important to do so. But, you know, a lot of people would say it's very hard. It's very hard to let go when you feel that other people were unkind, they were even malicious towards you. And, and bullying affects a lot of people. I mean, I, I started a, 
uh, anti-bullying uh, campaign called Don't Face It Alone with um, the Danner Award. And we did like research, right? I know you do a huge, so I mean, not, I'm doing this for I, the benefit of the audience. You, you understand the I, kind of I have a Diana Award, my friend. You are a Diana Award, ambassador. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, yeah, you, well, yeah, you did. You, yeah, of course you did. Of course you did. I mean, they're amazing. And, they uh, you know, I, I just collaborated with them on this, particularly looking at like mental health impacts. And the number of young people that are affected by bullying is huge. And the impacts on their mental health are also pretty significant for, yeah. for obvious reasons. So. You know, for anyone that's listening, going, Do you know, what? I was bullied at school. I, I find it hard to be at peace with that, or anyone that's been facing bullying now. What would you say to them to kind of free yourself from that kind of inner kind of blaming yourself or whatever it might be? Don't suffer in silence. I think a lot of the time people think that they've got it all on all on their own, and they take this vow of like silent, very very noble silence. I mean, it's mainly a very guy way of, of handling things, but don't don't do it that way. Absolutely talk to someone. Don't try and fight fire with fire, which is what I did. Is that what you did? Oh, yeah. I, I was in a very unfortunate situation where I was a lot smarter than the people building me. And I'd grown up on something like British comedy. So even at the age of 11, I was watching Dad's Army, Are You Being Served, Only Cause and Horses. The classics. Like, bottom. So I could, I'd just be, like, blowing kids up in the playground. They'd say one thing that was maybe a three. Word bombs. May maybe a three. Yeah. And then I'd be like, here's a ten for you. Go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. send them off. And, and well, they say that, what is it, the pen's mightier than the sword. Um, and you know, words, are, words are very powerful. So, yeah, I mean, it's easy for us sometimes, though. I mean, we talk about bullying in the, in the sense of thinking of, of school. And obviously, we, we recognise that bullying happens a lot at school, but it's not just at school, is it? No. Online and social media and things. And it's not only children that do bullying, it is the adults as well. So, yeah. but interestingly, when you look at surveys, a lot of the time, the perpetrators don't necessarily, sometimes they know they're perpetrators, sometimes they're in denial saying it isn't. And sometimes I think perhaps there is a gray area where people don't see that they are. They think, even though the behavior may not be acceptable at all, but they think that they're not perpetrators. So I wonder what you'd say to that and how people can kind of recognise perhaps that maybe there's a difference between having a joke, which we, you know, enjoy humour, yeah. humour is a big part of culture, so, and too a far. Lot, that's, a, that's a loaded question. There's a lot going on there. So let, let's break this down. Um, I think the landscape of all of this is very different from when I was young. I'm like a kid of the 80s. We didn't have social media. We didn't all have our little low self-esteem machines in our pocket. They were, they were very, very different times. And I think, had I been born in that time, I reckon it would have been a completely different struggle. I'd have still bossed it. It would have just taken it that, that little bit longer to, to get my head around it. And um, I think you're right. I think I've slightly fallen out of love with the term bullying. Mm. I think back when, I, when we were at school, we knew what it was. But I think now it feels a little bit juvenile to call something bullying. Uh, or it happened in the playground, sorry, bullying. But if the exact same thing happens in the street or in the workplace, that's abuse. That's, yeah. that's like a legal offence. Yeah. So I think we need to use the same severity of language for the same actions, irrespective. So what we're saying then is that at school, there's kind of a grey area of bullying. Actually, a lot of it's still very much abuse because of the harm it causes at school. But for adults, you know, I'd agree. You know, a lot of you see a lot of stuff online. Um, you know, I'm not here like oh, like violin or whatever. But like I've had, 
I've you know had abuse online, um, as many people have, and yeah. even witnessing abuse. So there's an interesting. I was reading um, about this uh, in in psychology that. You don't always have to be the victim of abuse to suffer abuse, isn't it? If you relate to someone, you see them being abused. You might not be the direct target, but you still you're still witnessing that. And I think there is perhaps people don't talk enough about the kind of damage that can do to people just seeing it. Say for example, I know everyone jumps on the bandwagon of this one, but Twitter is a clear example where oh, Well I left it three to four years ago for 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 those reasons. It just was literally damaging my mental health. I was like, this is not happening, I'm not using it, and I came off. But that is a good example of witnessing something that might not be directed at you, but it causes a huge amount of harm. And I just wonder, like, what is, what's the, you know, all the work that you've done, the campaigns you've done around uh, you know, anti-bullying, and of course, the work that Dan Award have done. I just wonder, like, what are some of the solutions do you think? I know that's a big question, I know we could talk yeah. all day. But like, what are the solutions? Is it looking at like a punishment? Like, so if, you're, if it's criminality of abuse, or is it dealing with trolling that way? Is it education? What is it? I, I would always go down the education route. I think, or the criminality thing. Um, it, it's very hard to put that genie back in that bottle at this point, particularly with, um, with Twitter. If you look at the people running Twitter, just going anywhere down a legal route just isn't going to work. I've always been a huge proponent of teaching media literacy in school. So as well as sort of like the reading, the writing, and, and the basic sort of like English language stuff, also how, what, what's an opinion and what's a fact? How do, we, how do we separate the two? And we need to start thinking about the words we use either before we say them or before we write them down and send them. And social media is very instantaneous. Back when I was young, if you wanted to say something mean to someone, you'd have to sign them, strap on a pair, say it to them, and then watch their soul die behind their eyes. And then you'd feel this good old-fashioned emotion called guilt or accountability. Whereas now you can write it, send it, and feel all powerful. Like, Piers Morgan now knows I don't like him. <laughs> and and it, it all feels like really victimless and impersonal. And we, we forget there's another human at the end of all, all of it. And almost added on to that, that the kind of um, separation, you're, all, you're actually rewarded by doing it. So if you say something really mean that people think really, is funny or they find humorous or whatever, they like it. And therefore you're actually being like dopamine rewarded by by doing it, so there's no, yeah. there's no accountability, but also you're getting this, you get this dopamine hit. Yeah, you get there's like a sick thrill to it, almost. So I'm trying really hard not to mention names lest people come to me. That's good, Graham. Look, like, look at Lawrence Fox, for example. He tweets and says some really obnoxious things on that platform and gets this engagement from it, but then not only fuels his like, career and his metrics, but his, his ego, and I, I don't know how fragile it, it, it is or isn't. It's an interesting thing, and I agree with you, to be honest. I know it's easy for me to agree with you. It'd be, it's more difficult to, to have a debate, although I love debate. Um, I agree with you. I think education has to be the big part of it. And it's kind of one of those things where, you know, I remember the first Nokia 3310 when I was like 9, 10 years old. I'm 32, 32, 33. I remember that. And all of a sudden you went from that to Facebook, to Instagram, to, you know, ridiculous levels of tech in your pocket and, and digital connectivity. 
But at no point in that process did I, did I ever learn anything about how to use this. You've got this incredibly powerful tool, this voice box that's there, but there wasn't any kind of learning about like, how do I use this? And also how do I deal with like social nuances? Yeah. How do you be respectful online? What, what is accountability and what does that look like? I think as part of the school curriculum, they are teaching a lot more on social media, but I think you're right. We have to look at like those things, like realizing that if you say something on paper online, it, just because you can't see what happens from it, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And it's also like there, there forever. I think we, we forget that um, once you put something actually the digital ether, you can click delete tweet or anything all you want. Someone can find it. Someone's going to see it. I mean, do you know what's a good example, actually, do you know, that just brings to my mind. I was on the way to another Stompcast episode a few weeks ago. I was on Radio 4, and there was, there was a lot being said about someone in the, in the public space. And one of the lawyers, a lawyer, sorry, came onto Radio 4 and said, just remember that when you're saying something, if you're saying or suggesting or even, like, in, insinuating something of someone, you can be held accountable in court. You are, you are publishing something. If you tweet something or you type something on Instagram, you are publishing an opinion, a comment, and something that can be, it can be absolutely, absolutely held against you in, in court. Yeah. But people yeah. don't realize that what you write, is, that can be, that is, you know, you're publishing something. Um, it, it's, it's, it's important. Yeah, because so. I, no, I, I saw the whole debacle you're, you're referring to. Yeah. On, on Twitter, someone yeah. said, oh, this person is this, did this. And it turns out he didn't. And that, and that could have been, you know, liable in the UK is a real thing. There's like no maximum threshold on damages. But it luckily, the victim in question accepted a public apology and a £1,000 donation to charity. I honestly think that world would be so much better if people do a little pause between the brain thinking something and the engagement of their fingers typing, I think would be a really good thing for the whole of society. And on that, and on that not so profound note, we'll come to the end of part one. Uh, we'll see you all very soon. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you in part two. Thank you so much for listening to this part of the Stompcast. If you're ready and want to listen to the next part right now, head over to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe to Behind the Stomp. Otherwise, we'll see you tomorrow. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.